I want us to look at Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. If this is your first Sunday here at Windsor Road, we're so happy you're here. We're a life-changing community, passionately pursuing Christ. We want to make much of Jesus. And uh, this season, we are going through a series of messages through Mark's gospel. And we are in Mark 10, verses 13 through 16 this morning. You'll find that on page 716 of your church Bibles. If you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own, I wish you would take the navy blue Bible in the pouch in front of you. Put your name on it and take it home. I'd be happy for you to have it as a gift from the church family. Follow along with me as I read Mark chapter 10, verses 13 to 16. People were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, put his hands on them, and blessed them. This is God's word. I wonder, having just heard these words, how you responded. I wonder which of the following two responses best describes your reaction to these verses in Mark 10, 13 to 16. When you heard these verses just moments ago, when you heard me read these verses, when you read these verses, did you think to yourself, what, what? Did he really say that? Really? How can that be? Did I just hear that? Did you do a double take? In other words, did these verses strike you as radical and revolutionary, even over the top? Or when you heard these verses just moments ago, did you think to yourself, well, yeah, yes, of course. Now, that's what I believe. And I'm glad he said that. Which of those two responses best describes you? It's not a trick question. What does he want? What does the pastor want me to say? I'm conflicted. No, no, no. Well, I'll just speak for myself. I'm door number two. When I heard these verses, it's like, well, yeah, that's what I believe. I'm glad Jesus said that, you know? And probably my guess is is that's where most, if not all, of you were. And do you know why? Because you live in 21st century Champaign-Urbana. You live in the world where we value children. You and I live in a world where police officers park their cruisers in the median in front of our elementary schools at the beginning, at the end of the school day to protect our children and prevent disaster. We live in that world. It's a part of our community culture. We live in a world where at our local church here we have a family life ministry. A family life ministry. And part of your offerings go to fund staff and programs and training for parents and children so that they will passionately pursue Christ. 
And, and this year, this year, I'm happy to tell you that we're, we're making a concerted effort to deal with the space issues for our children. And we're praying and we're doing more than praying. We're, we're having planning sessions and to deal with facility issues for our children because we live in a world where children matter to God. 21st century Champaign-Urbana. But these verses did not come to our world at first. These verses came to the first century world of the Roman Empire, and all was not well for children in that world. For instance, for instance, uh, let me read for you a letter from a husband to his pregnant wife. Uh, Archaeology has uncovered this letter. The husband's on a business trip. The date of the letter is what we would understand to be June 17th, the year 1 B.C. After an endearing greeting, the husband writes this to his wife. He writes, Know that we are still even now in Alexandria. Do not worry if when all the others return, I remain in Alexandria. I beg and beseech of you to take care of the little child, and as soon as we receive wages, I will send them to you. If, good luck to you, you bear offspring, if it is a male, let it live. If it is a female, expose it. You told Aphrodisius, do not forget me. How can I forget you? I beg you, therefore, not to worry. June 17th, the year 1 B.C. Fascinating and horrifying. Right? I mean, the husband basically says, sweetheart, I'm coming home soon. I love you. I miss you. I can't wait to see you. And when the baby's born, if it's a boy, let it live. If not, expose it. Expose it. Which means throw it out like garbage. Like I set my garbage out Thursday morning. And the assumption being that someone would see that baby and pick it up and then that baby would become someone's slave for life. And then almost seamlessly, he just concludes, honey, I love you so much. How could I ever forget that? And how could could you ever forget that I would forget that? You know? Fascinating. And horrifying. We'd be shocked by such a letter. We'd call DCFS. They didn't have a DCFS in their world. It was the world... of brutality to some children in the first century. And and, and such attitudes may not have existed in the minds of every single Roman family, but that's what the culture allowed. That's what the culture permitted. That's what the culture sanctioned. That That was the world of Mark chapter 10. It was the world of the father of the family, the father of the family. It was the world of the pater familias, pater father, familias, family, the father of the family. In the Roman Empire, the father of the family possessed almost absolute power. Roman law allowed the father to execute his infant child for up to eight days old. And even after that, the child's future was uncertain. 
You know, in our day, we tend to think of children uh, in terms of developmental stages, infancy, uh, toddler, school age, adolescence, etc. That's not how they thought in the first century. Uh, childhood consisted of one group, birth to age 12, and that one group was subdivided, two parts. You're either slave or free. And if you were a slave, if you were a slave child, the Romans did not blink at putting you to work as soon as you were physically capable of doing so. Uh, archaeologists have also uncovered a tombstone of one little boy whose name was Quintus. Quintus worked in the silver mines. And on the tombstone is etched this child. In a, he's in a short tunic. He's in bare feet. He's holding a miner's axe and a basket. It's the tomb. Quintus. He was four years old. Four years old. That was the world of Mark chapter 10. And, and really, the greatest value that a child brought to a family was if that child was a firstborn male to serve as the heir of the father's family, the pater familias. And this brutality toward children, well, it cycled through because those children would then grow up to be adults to treat other children the way they were treated. And one scholar calls it a vicious circle of contempt for those who are smaller and weaker. And that's why of the babies that did survive in the first century Roman Empire, 25% of them would die within their first year. And up to half of all children would die. Up to half of all children would die before the age of 10. That's the world of Mark chapter 10. Now, now, given that world, can you imagine how revolutionary and radical this scene is from Mark's gospel? Parents in more conservative Israel, Palestine, They've heard about Jesus' teaching and ministry. Some of them have children, and not every parent in the empire was as callous about children as the culture was. Some of them cherished and loved their sons and daughters, and they brought their children to Jesus. They wanted Jesus to touch their children and bless their children, perhaps even to heal their children. And these parents are bringing their children and the crowd is forming and there are children and parents and there's this wonderful sweet scene that all of a sudden just gets stopped cold in its tracks by these pit bulls, harsh rebukes. Hey, 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 back off people, back off. Get back, come on. The rabbi can't see you people right now. Go on, go on. Who were these pit bulls? Were they the Roman legions? Were they the, were they the legalistic Pharisees? Oh no, 12 pit bulls, the 12, the 12 disciples, they're barking at these parents. The scripture says in verse 13, but the disciples rebuked them. Now why would they do that? Why would they do that? Uh, I mean, had they not read earlier in Mark's gospel? Oh, wait a minute, they're in Mark's gospel. Had they forgotten Jesus raising Jairus' 12-year-old daughter in Mark 5? 
Oh, what, about the, what about the boy with an evil spirit in Mark chapter 9? I mean, had they forgotten about that? Had they forgotten what Jesus said in Mark chapter 9, verse 37, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Had they forgotten that? Had they forgotten Mark chapter 9, verse 42? If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. Well, I'll tell you this much. Jesus hadn't forgotten. (laughs) He didn't forget. And when he saw what they were doing to those parents and those children, Jesus was the one who became the pit bull. Hey, hey, hey! Peter, John, James, what, what, are you, what are you doing? What do you think you're doing? Verse 14, when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. And then I'm, I'm seeing two things happen here. He's, he's like eyeballing the disciples. And then he's going, come on. No, no, come on, parents, children, it's fine. You guys, what are you doing? What are you doing? I'm on you. No, come on, it's okay. It's, it's really, you guys, I'm going to just, just get back. Come on, it's okay. Verse 14, when he saw this, he was indignant. Literally, literally, he was incensed at their inappropriate and wrong behavior. Jesus was mad. And he wanted to, at the same time, he wanted to bless the children and brain the disciples. Let them come. Stop that. And then Christ gave this revolutionary and radical word. Verse 14, the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Jesus is saying, why? Why are you keeping away the most qualified people in my kingdom? And then came this pronouncement. It's a pronouncement. It's called a pronouncement verse because it is it's preceded by this phrase, I tell you the truth. You know, verily, verily, amen, amen. This pronouncement. If you don't become like them, you're not getting in. Verse 15, I tell you the truth. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Huh. Never? Never. You know, I don't care if you've seen me transfigured. I don't care if you've seen me calm the wind or walk on water or feed the 5,000 or the 4,000 or exercise demons or perform miracles. If you don't get yourself as qualified as these kids, you're not coming in my house. It's that simple. Can any of us miss the big idea here? If you want to enter Christ's kingdom, you must receive his kingdom like a child. That's the big idea. You want to enter Christ's kingdom, you must receive the kingdom like a child. In a sense, in a sense, God has chosen you to never, ever grow up. In a sense, God has chosen you. God wants you to be forever children. To receive the kingdom like a child. I'm not talking about Peter Pan. I'm talking about what Jesus says. 
to never, ever grow up. Now, now, so what's he mean by that? If I need to, if I want to enter the kingdom, I need to receive the kingdom like a child. Okay, so what does Jesus mean by that? Well, some have argued that to enter the kingdom as a child means that you need to possess the virtues of children. You need to possess the innocence of children, or you need to uh, possess the spontaneity of children, or just as children are happy, just as children are teachable, just as children are trusting, just as children are like a wet clay that you can mold and shape, etc., etc. Well, that's how you need to be. You need to possess their virtues. You enter the kingdom by possessing the virtue of childhood. And while I understand that perspective, I'm not really confident that that's what Jesus meant. And here's why. You see, the implication is that if I can just muster up enough of these virtues, well, then Jesus will accept me. He will have to accept me. If I possess these virtues, then he will accept me. And I'm not so sure about that. I'm not so sure that's what this is saying. Seems to me there's, there's a better perspective. And it's just the opposite of what you just heard. You see, Jesus is telling us that it's not what you possess that qualifies you to enter Christ's kingdom. It's what you don't possess. It's not what you have that qualifies you. It's what you don't have. And only those who lack any qualifications to enter his kingdom, may qualify to enter his kingdom. That's what he's saying. And more than any other social class or group or stratus level in society, these little children stand out as as lacking any qualification. They're small, they're powerless, they're without sophistication. They have nothing to bring to the table. They have nothing to contribute, no credit, no clout, no claims. The only way that a little child survives and thrives is by the grace and mercy and care of, of tender parents who love that child based solely, based solely on that child's sheer neediness and not on any intrinsic merit in himself or herself. If, listen, if you want a picture of qualified kingdom citizens, just stick your head in the nursery. Their need is what qualifies them. And he took the children in his arms. How young were these children? Young enough for him to hold. Young enough for him to lift them. Young enough to hug them. Young enough to give them butterfly kisses. Young enough to be unable to contribute anything to the one who held them. And he took the children in his arms, put his hands on them, and bless them. If you want to enter Christ's kingdom, you must receive the kingdom as a child. And you receive the kingdom, you qualify for the kingdom by acknowledging that you have no qualifications to enter the kingdom. That's what's going on here. How on earth could the disciples have missed this? How could they have missed this? How how could they have such a distorted view of these children and their parents? 
Was it their culture? Was that it? Had, had they been so immersed in the Roman way that they were blinded to the value that God placed on these children? It can happen, you know. It can. It's happening right now in our culture. Think about it. How much ink has been spilled on the front pages of the papers this week about gun control for children? Which is a very important and commendable conversation to have. And it seems to me that it would be incomplete if we didn't also talk about scalpel control for the unborn. You see, the abortion issue comes down to this question. What do we believe about the unborn? What do, what, the question is this, what is it? What is it? You're there in your kitchen, you're doing the dishes, your child comes from, up from behind you, and your back is to your child, and your child says, Daddy, Mommy, can I kill this? What's your first next question? What is it? What is it? And that is the core question in the conversation about abortion. Because if the unborn are not persons, if they're not persons, then no justification for abortion is necessary. But if they are, then no justification for abortion is adequate. I wish you'd go out into the foyer after our services and we have a display uh, from the Living Alternatives Ministry. We've got uh, brochures that we've left in, uh, on your chairs this morning to remind you of this important life-saving ministry. And as you're interacting with the brochures on the table, I wish you would pick up uh, an article. I left uh, several copies of an article from Stand to Reason, uh, which is led by Greg Kokel, who has preached here at this pulpit. And it's an excellent article called The Sled Test. The Sled Test. And the SLED, SLED is an acronym, S-L-E-D, concerning talking points to have uh, over the conversation of abortion. And what I like about the SLED Test is that um, these talking points are based on, on philosophy, uh, you won't find a Bible verse in this article on the sled test because, because so many people don't acknowledge the authority of the Bible. But by going through the talking points of the sled, we can have a reasonable conversation pertaining to the life of the unborn. And I want to make sure you're aware also of the annual pro-life vigil that uh, Windsor Road is a part of uh, along with several other con congregations in our community. This year, we've had it here at Windsor uh, before. This year, it happens to be at St. Matthew's Church, uh, Tuesday at 7.30. It's amazing how our culture can blind us to truth and create a distorted view of children. That said, I don't think that was the root problem with the disciples, I, I really don't. I think, I think there was a d deeper distortion that was going on. I think the disciples' problem wasn't their distorted view of children. Well, they had a distorted view of children, 
But that stemmed from a deeper distortion, and that was a distorted view of themselves. You see, they thought they were better. They thought they were more worthy, more deserving. They thought they had seniority. And when that thought gets lodged in your heart, it becomes so easy to look down in condemnation on other people. I mean, had the disciples truly grasped the gospel of the kingdom, they would have known in no uncertain terms that they're no more worthy than these little children. They would have known that they're more, no more deserving. They're no more qualified. They're no more fitting to receive Christ's love and grace and mercy and acceptance than those little ones. Isn't it sad? Isn't it sad how once we've accepted unearned grace, how easy it, it is for us to take what we didn't earn and then transfigure or transform it into a reason to look down on others? How do you take the most beautiful story of grace and mercy and love and then distort that and twist that into ugly pride? And we do. When we hear, you know, when we hear stories of Christian brothers and sisters who have made serious mistakes with their lives, when we, in our hearts, say, or with our mouths speak, well, I can't believe you would do such a thing. Well, of course you can. You're a sinner too. All of us are ever only accepted by grace. And when you get that, it just changes the way you see. Changes the way you see others. It changes the way you see yourself. It changes the way you see God. And what that means is, is that the one that is privileged to preach before God's people here every Sunday Well, the preacher needs what he preaches just as much and more than those who hear him preach. And any time, any time I can look down on someone in our church or in our community, any time I start to think of that I'm more deserving of God's love and acceptance, any time I don't want to be near them, any time I feel put out by them, listen, at that very moment, I've not misunderstood who they are. I've misunderstood who I am. And what these verses teach me is that those who are best at giving grace are those who know they need it most. And those who never seek grace are those who are convinced they deserve it most. And I fear that the longer that you're a Christian or the longer that you're a pastor, the easier it is to believe the lie that you have attained spiritual tenure. That's why I like what Paul David Tripp has written. He's a kind of a pastor to pastors. He's an author. He wrote, what Jesus wants to do is to move us from the delusions of adulthood toward the helplessness of a little child. If those disciples had seen themselves as needy little children, they would never have gotten in the way of those needy little children. If you want to enter Christ's kingdom, you've got to receive the kingdom as a little child. And that means you've got to acknowledge your helplessness before a holy God. Listen, can we continue to be the kind of church that opens our arms to those whom the world wants to shoo away? Can we do that? 
Well, that's going to start individually. And so, and so individually. You know, are, who are you here? You know, are you a parent or are you a pit bull? Are you one of the moms and dads or are you one of the disciples here? Are you, are you a part of what God is doing or are you in the way of it? Has your reception of grace made you a person of grace? Hmm? Has knowing that you have love you didn't deserve made you a person of love? What do you think? Are you kind and patient and merciful because you know full well that every day you have received kindness and patience and mercy from God? That question gets answered based often as soon as how we leave the parking lot. I look at these verses and I think about how many in our church family are connected uh, to other ministries here in the community. And that is so wonderful to see what God is doing, not only through this local church, but through the several parachurch ministries that are happening. And, and for those of us who are studying in seminary, and well, these verses speak to those of us in such settings. You see, the fact of the matter is, some people are incredibly easy to minister to and pastor. They're just wonderful. They're low-maintenance sheep. They're the kind of sheep that make me feel good about being a shepherd. And at the same time, these verses force some uncomfortable questions on me, like, well, do I just like pastoring those who are easy to pastor? Do I just want to pastor the low-maintenance sheep, the sheep who make me feel good about being a shepherd? Or, you know, you know, have I found myself staying away from the EGR sheep, the extra grace required sheep? <laughs> Is that my idea of cross-driven ministry? Or am I willing to pay attention to those about whom the Apostle Paul spoke in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. I mean, you want to know, you want to know who the congregation was in Corinth? I mean, Paul calls them out. 1 Corinthians 1, 26. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him. Do you know why you're in Christ? Look at 1 Corinthians 1.30. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. It's because of Jesus that you're in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast 
in the Lord. Oh, we may be talented. We may be talented, but we're not that talented. We're not that good. All we have is because of who Jesus is, because he's, because he scooped us up in his arms, and he loved us. And so now, as his body, as his hands, as his arms, he calls us, he calls us to continue to open our arms to those whom the world just wants to go away. Well, can we be his hands and his arms? Can we? Can we be the kind of church that gives to those who have no means to pay back? Can we be the kind of church that receives those whom the world rejects? Can we be the church that nurtures and welcomes and loves and cares for the vulnerable, the unpopular, the socially awkward, knowing full well that when we receive such, we receive Jesus Christ himself? You want to enter Christ's kingdom, you must receive the kingdom like a child. And that means you've got to come to him with no qualifications whatsoever. That's the only thing that qualifies. You know, the only person that I can think of who had the right to be choosy about who he spent his time with was Jesus. The only person I can think of who had the right to say, you're beneath me, was Jesus. The only person I can think of who had the right to be picky about the company he kept was the king himself. But you and I both know that that's not who Jesus was and that's not what he did. In these verses in Mark chapter 10, Jesus opened his arms to the little children. And later on in Mark's gospel, we will see him open his arms on the cross, being crucified among the lowest of the low between two criminals. He would do that. And so must we. So Lord, help us feed the least of these Help us find the least of these. Help us serve the least of these. Help us love the least of these. For your glory, for their good. In your holy name we pray, God's people said.